Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Do, 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 do. You better stop the things you do. I ain't lying. I put a spell on you. Yes, you certainly did. The iconic sound of American singer, songwriter, pianist and civil rights activist Nina Simone. Taken from her 1965 album, I Put a Spell on You, released by Philip Records. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to get close to one of the greats of musical history, one of the least understood artists of our time, one of culture's most influential artists, the black power icon Nina Simone. This evening I'm joined by award-winning music journalist and author Alan Light, whose new book, What Happened Miss Simone? A Biography, has just been published by Canongate. Suffice to say, compelling, if not killer reading, for any Nina Simone fan. This book has it all in spades. In What Happened to Miss Simone, Alan Light writes, Trained as a classical pianist, she was often called a jazz singer, but it was a label she deeply resented, seeing it only as racial classification. She grudgingly accepted the popular nickname the High Priestess of Soul, but gave it little significance. If anything, she claimed she was a folk singer, and her dazzling, unpredictable repertoire is perhaps unmatched in its range. Earlier on in her career, Nina stated, Jazz is a white term to define black people. My music is black classical music. Hi, I'm Alan Light. I'm a, a long-time uh, career music journalist. I was the editor-in-chief of Vibe and Spin magazines, and I write for Rolling Stone and for the New York Times. And I've written several books about music, uh, including The Holy or the Broken, which was the story of Leonard Cohen and the song Hallelujah, and Let's Go Crazy, uh, Prince and the Making of Purple Rain. And I also co-wrote... Greg Allman's memoir, My Cross to Bear, with him. Really well done on the book, Alan. It's a monumental read, whether you're a fan of Nina Simone or have a general interest in her music, or you're just looking for just a really gripping personal read. This book has so many different aspects. I might start off with a big wide open question and ask you, and it has a kind of a bit of a double edge to it. Am I crazy to even ask you to describe Eunice Kathleen Wayman? Because she, reading through even the first few pages of the book, it jumps off the page that while she was this unbelievably talented woman, she was also a very tormented, tortured type of genius, unpredictable, temperamental, forceful, intense. And very much indescribable in a lot of different ways. Well, certainly that's true. I mean, Nina's story is a you know is a complicated one, and certainly not always a a pleasant one. She had a difficult life, and uh, it got increasingly difficult as as time went on. And you know, it's hard. I mean, one thing that really became so noticeable through the course of working on the book is just 
how difficult it is to define or to describe the music that she made or to try to tell people who don't know well, who was Nina Simone? And a lot of people describe her as a jazz singer, but she hated being described as a jazz singer and felt that she was only given that, that label because she was black and that had nothing to do with the music that she was making. You know, she gets called a soul singer, but she certainly didn't sing like Aretha Franklin or James Brown or the people that we think of as the great soul singers. What she did was very different than that. And, you know, to try to put her into any sort of category creatively is difficult enough, much less to get at the many, many layers of this life from a, you know, uh, an, an upbringing that was really focused on her uh, beginning as a, a child prodigy pianist, somebody who really aspired to a career as a classical performer. And in some ways, I think that a key to understanding Nina is the, the extent to which that never went away, that no matter what happened within her life, within her career, she always considered herself a fine artist, uh, an artist in the classical tradition, somebody who expected that their music would be listened to and taken seriously. And, you know, she wasn't ever about being an entertainer. She was about creating a different kind of art. And if you sort of keep that in mind as you go through all of this very rocky story and experiences that, that happen through the rest of her life, that's the thing that kind of never goes away, was this, this self-definition as an artist, you know, with all of the, the seriousness and all of the dedication that that implies. How embittered was she about the fight for racial and social justice? Because it seems in so many different ways that the fight for um, racial equality really steamrolled her throughout her whole life. I think what happened is that, you know, she sort of put all her chips on this classical career. I mean, that was where everything was focused for so long. There was funds being raised in her small town in North Carolina to pay for her music training because she was going to be the person who really broke out of that place and became somebody important. Then, you know, she, she sort of didn't make that last leap into this classical career, and she wasn't accepted at the conservatory that she had been hoping for and, and, and aiming for. And it's not really clear entirely why that was. I mean, some of her, you know, her teacher at the time said, you know, she was really, really good, but she wasn't quite good enough. And, you know, though she believed that it was because she was black and she was female, the fact is, there had been very, you know, very few, but, but there were other black and female musicians who had been accepted into this institution. But it, it doesn't matter. I mean, what was important is that was what she believed, that she didn't get that position purely because it was, she was discriminated against. What happens over time is that that absolute sense of commitment that she gave to her classical training, she really shifted all of that into this fight for civil rights and this fight for racial equality. And that was 100% of her vision and her focus, and that was what her music was meant for, and that was what she sort of gave everything to. When that eventually collapsed, you know, as the, as the 1960s move on and leaders are assassinated and the, the movement sort of splinters and enough gains are made that 
you know, so the, the momentum kind of dissipates. I think she just feels that that's the point at which she just kind of loses it. I mean, she's put all that she had into two things now that didn't work out the way that she wanted. And after that, her life really starts to spin out in a way that she never recovers from, compounded with, you know, emotional issues, with mental illness, with, you know, lots of other things that are going on just inside her, her brain. After the civil rights movement sort of drifts away and, and doesn't achieve what she had dreamed of, she really never bounces back from that. Do you think that political activism, though, that all the force that she brought to that, did that hold her anger in some way and her disappointments? Do you think from reading through all the letters that you've gone through that that gave her that creative tension? Yeah, and certainly the sense of fury and of frustration and of anger and fight. I mean, it gave her music a, a focus and it gave it a purpose, certainly not always to her commercial benefit. You know, there were a lot of places that wouldn't book her to perform because the risk was too great that she would go on some, you know, political diatribe. Certainly she felt that if she wasn't being listened to, wasn't being respected properly from the audience, she had no hesitation about either yelling at them or walking off stage. But her political action gave this blazing sense of purpose to her work, and certainly what's at the the center of her of her body of work are the songs that were created out of this intense passion for the fight that she was fighting um, and for a belief that she was making music and and creating art for this this higher purpose and this greater mission. You know, of course, what came with that was maintaining this sense of anger and this sense of rage. And as with, uh, as with many great artists, it was this notion that there was something larger that she was fighting for that was really behind uh, much of the finest work that she did. Are you ready to smash white things, burn buildings? Are you ready? Are you ready to build black things? You open the book with those lines. I think it was from the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1968. You describe it as a black Woodstock. It's incredibly powerful. And you, you say it would, would be the defining performance of Nina Simone in her life. Why do you think it is so then when we look at that and have that at the back of our minds that so many commentators, music journalists and critics have just got so bogged down with the idea that Nina Simone is this angry person, this difficult artist, this tricky person. And do you think that they have maybe misrepresented what she stood for and the woman that she was? And yes, well, she was. She had rage and yes, she was embittered. And given the fact that she was a black woman in America at the time that was laced with prejudices, life was pretty difficult. Yeah, I, listen, I think there's the, there's the, the tremendous risk with, with any figure as complicated as this. There's one dimension or one aspect that becomes sort of the thing that defines them. And certainly the music that Nina Simone made it was really beyond category in certain ways and was drawing from such an incredible range of, of influences, of aspirations. I mean, this was somebody who could sing an Israeli folk song and then a Broadway song and a jazz standard and an African play song, was one of the great interpreters of Bob Dylan. It's hard to come up with any sort of parallel or precedent for the, the breadth of the music that she was drawing from and, and incorporating into her own stuff. So that inevitably gets reduced to whatever is sort of the, the most obvious aspect. But certainly it is true that the politics and the activism were very much at the core of her, you know, the greatest period of her work. And, you know, certainly she deserves greater than just being limited to a a definition of, you know, Nina Simone, angry black woman. 
though, you know, certainly she was all of those things, um, and all of those things for, you know, a big chunk of what what her career was and what her work represented. Um, it's just that there is so much else to this artist. Now, she said, I sing from intelligence. And then she, you quote her saying something on the lines of what I do when I'm at my best is mass hypnosis. Do you think that she was aware of the raw energy that she could generate and that she was able to tap into the energies of the crowd and sometimes maybe yeah, play up to the stereotype of the volatile, crazy artist? But she was able to almost preach in this creative way. Well, I think that's that's right. I mean, I think that her, uh, I believe it's her longest, uh, you know, musical partner and her guitar player, Al Shackman. I think there's a quote from him very early on saying that, you know, as soon as she was out playing clubs and starting to gain a reputation, that part of the mystique was, you know, was she going to show up and was she going to be able to make it through the set? You know, that that became part of the enterprise from very, very early on. But I think that You know, I think that she was aware of the power that she had, of the mesmerizing strength and control that she had at her best as a performer. And again, I think that for her, that goes back to, again, this this classical training and this coming out of a world where she was taught by her piano teachers, you know, you sit proper at your keyboard and you wait till people quiet down, until they listen to you, and, you know, a music that was performed in theaters for listening audiences as opposed to a music that was played in nightclubs for drinking and socializing audiences. And she never, she was never comfortable compromising that relationship between an artist and an audience based on the, the context. She approached playing at a jazz festival or an outdoor concert or something like that in the same way that she thought she should approach playing at Carnegie Hall. You know, those are those are different things. <laughs> different things work in those situations, and you you have different expectations from why the audience is there. But that didn't change for her. And to her, this wasn't a question of her being difficult. This was a question of the audience being difficult. That if they were not prepared to meet her in the way that she expected, then you know that was what they deserved. There's the right way that you treat this music, and if she wasn't going to get that, there was no point in in compromising what she was there to do. It did her no favors. There were a lot of promoters who refused to work with her after a while because they'd been burned by too many performances that didn't work out. Um, But as you said, the nights when it was there, that electricity and that sort of razor's edge tension, I think that she knew exactly what the power that she was working with, you know, what what she was fully able to do with that. I suppose best described as uncompromising with that sense of the aesthetic. It's a classic cocktail, but you're always going to get volatility within that. I'm just going to throw you a philosophical question. Do you think suffering leads to artistic genius? Because all through all through her, her life story is tremendous suffering. But she in some way used that suffering to produce the most magnificent music. Do you, so do you think they're in a relationship in some way or certainly with her? It's an age old question to try to resolve that. And, you know, it's that's led to certainly the, the personal demise of many musicians, many artists um, who have felt a need to sort of conjure suffering or pain or drug use or whatever it is that they think will create an environment that will lead to different levels of creativity. I don't know how one answers that. I think that the, the, the geniuses, and I think there was certainly genius in Nina Simone, are the ones who are truly able to, to harness their emotion and, 
who are able to access that in a more direct way and who are able to communicate it in a more immediate way. And I don't think it's a question of that they require the suffering to be great artists so much as, you know, what makes you a great artist is the ability to get inside of those emotions, no matter how raw or complex or or difficult they may be. Certainly, you get the feeling that for Nina Simone, it was just difficult to live a life on this earth with the way that humans treat each other, with this absolute uncompromising spirit that she had that, you know, that didn't tolerate anything less than full respect for her as an artist, full respect for her as a human being. If that's what you're bringing to the table, you're going to end up disappointed and you're going to end up angry a lot of the time for entirely understandable reasons. You know, in some ways, just as a small aside in the book and then became much more interesting after David Bowie passed, Nina went, took her daughter to go see David Bowie at Madison Square Garden, and she went out later that night and she actually ran into to Bowie at a nightclub. And he called her over, and they spoke, and and he asked if he could call her and be in touch with her. And he called her every night in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. for a month. And at least as she told the story, what Bowie said to her was, listen, for a genius like you, there are very few people like that on, on this earth. There's hardly anybody else out there with you. And he made the distinction saying, you know, she was a genius. He was you know, a performer, an entertainer. He said, I could make myself a rock star sort of strategically. I knew what it was going to take. It wasn't that I was a great singer. It was that I was smart enough to know how you make yourself into a rock star. For you, Nina, that's just about your genius. That's not about any kind of strategy. And that's the part that's going to make this difficult, if not impossible for you. Nina, not always the most reliable teller of her own story. But if that's true, it's certainly an extreme, wildly perceptive point for him to make and distinction for him to make. My skin is black My arms are long My back is strong Strong enough to take the pain Inflicted again and again What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah My skin is yellow My hair is long Between two worlds I do belong My father was and white He forced my mother late one night What do they call me? My name is Saffronia
Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're unpacking the life and legend that is Nina Simone with music journalist and author Alan Light. I am aware that I'm an instrument. I have fights with God every day. I tell him, unless you do such and such a thing, I'm not going to play anymore. I've been given the gift of being able to play by ear, having perfect pitch, having things that ordinary people do not have. When you have this gift, you must give it back to the world. That's the only way you're going to get it off your back. So quotes music journalist Alan Light in his engrossing new biography of Nina Simone, What Happened to Miss Simone, published by Canongate. I asked Alan about Nina's extraordinary marriage to music promoter Andrew Stroud, a marriage that was unpredictable, if not hugely psychotic in parts. After the breakup, Nina said to a journalist, I married him because I needed desperately to love somebody. I put it to Alan how difficult was it to get at the truth when both Nina and Andrew were without question unreliable narrators of their lives and marriage. Well, it's a very, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent question because it was truly the most difficult part of this project. You know, the way that this book happened uh, is that there's this film, there was this documentary that came out last year that got a tremendous amount of attention and was nominated for an Academy Award. And the producers of the film, I think when they started to get a sense that the movie was going to get this attention and get this traction, had this thought that, you know, they had done all this research, they had all this information, only a small amount of that actually makes it to the screen, as as with any film, and that they should do something more with all the stuff they'd gathered. And they approached me to say, you know, would you take this material that we made into a film and 
turn that into a book that fills in more of, of what this story is. So they sort of handed me over all of this stuff that they'd gathered for all these years with all kinds of extraordinary stuff in it, Nina's letters and diaries and you know, extensive interviews with her daughter and archival interviews with her ex-husband, her ex-manager, you know, stuff that otherwise I never could have gotten a hold of which then I had to sort of very quickly turn into something, and it was, you know, a bit of a sprint. But the hardest part for me is there are these situations where, you know, we have Nina's version of, of the facts, and she's notoriously not reliable about, about detail. I mean, she had written a brief memoir that came out, I think, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And it's, you know, some of it's fascinating, but it's just wildly you know, erratic and inconsistent, and she has things happening in the wrong decades, and things are way out of order in terms of... So the, the main thing for me was just building sort of a reliable chronology and actually trying to figure out a sequence of what happened in her life in the right order. Did you meet with Andrew Stroud, her ex-husband? He was an ex-cop, and he had a particularly vicious reputation on the streets, and I think that attracted her to him in some way, that kind of protection and that force. But he admitted to some of the violence, didn't he? Yeah, well, what's the, I mean, the most, the hardest thing to really sort out was, you know, it is clear that Andrew was, as you said, was capable of violence, had a reputation on the streets as a, as a tough cop, that she was attracted to that. She knew what she was dealing with. And that there was certainly one incident after they were together, actually when they were engaged, but before they were married, where they had a fight and he just beat the hell out of her. And it's, it's agonizing to read the, the accounts of, of this, you know, this situation and her version and his version and her, her guitar player, Al Shackman, whose apartment she went to, you know, when she could escape from this beating, you know, they all line up and there's a consistent story there. What's complicated is then in, you know, she would sort of refer to the beatings that had happened and talk about this as an ongoing situation or at least a, something that had happened more than once. And Andy Stroud was insistent that, you know, that did happen that one time, but it was not a recurrent pattern. It was not something that happened again. It was not something that he did. And neither of them are still around. You're reconstructing from old interviews and, and old letters. And both of them in other situations are, you know, clearly not 100% reliable, whether intentional or, or just, you know, misremembering stuff. So what's the right way to sort that out? I mean, what's the right way to be sensitive to her version and the, you know, clearly the, the pain and the anger that she felt, but also not feel like I was being unfair to him and presenting this as, uh, you know, that if this was being exaggerated, that, uh, you know, I was presenting an accurate representation of him and his his role in all of this. That's hard. I mean, that's when I really felt like, you know, I'm a, my career, I'm a journalist. That felt like being a historian in a different way um, and really trying to piece together different documents and different versions and try to you know, if not be entirely 100% conclusive, at least be as as accurate and be as fair as possible around a really sensitive situation. Well, it was clear that it was a very sexually charged relationship. There was huge sexual attraction there and that they both worked off that. But she said that he worked her like a dog. And it struck me as I was reading through the chapter on their marriage that he didn't really get her or certainly her artistic sense. He knew that she was going to make a lot of money, but he didn't really understand her artistry in some no. way. 
it's unclear that that anybody could fully understand Nina or could fully identify or sympathize. I mean, she complained that he worked her too hard and it was uh, exploitative and that he was just thinking about the money. But, you know, then you hear the other, you know, you hear her musicians talk about it and they say, well, we'd go to Europe and usually if you would book a tour, you would want to be as efficient as possible and play as much as you could do to make the, the expenses worth it. And she would insist on, you'd play a show, then there'd be a day off, then there'd be a travel day, then you'd play a show, and we'd play maybe you know two nights a week, and nobody could make any money at all because the expenses were greater than, than what we could take in, only playing every few nights. And in the meantime, you know, she made no secret that she wanted a big house and a swimming pool and, a, and fancy clothes, and that she expected to live the life and have the expenses of being a, a, a celebrity and being a star while putting severe restrictions on how frequently she would work, how frequently she'd perform or record. And, you know, and again, certainly not compromise the kind of music that she was making or the kind of performances she was giving, you know, with any sort of commercial concern in mind. So to lay all of that at her, at her husband and manager's feet and say, you know, well, this is his fault and he doesn't, he doesn't get me and he's just trying to make as much money as he can, clearly, you know, that was more difficult than that and she was more complicit in that and involved in it than she wanted to let on. And again, the, these are the contradictions of a person who was very full of contradictions. But, you know, all the drugs that were they were taking during it, you have a story about an Egyptian or an Ethiopian princess that there's a threesome. She teased him with other men. He worked her hard in so many different ways that there were so many consequences and vicious consequences to what they were doing to each other. And it struck me that maybe they didn't fully think them through. Can I ask you about her mother, Mary Kate? They had a very conflictual relationship and you you say in the book that in some way Nina resented the fact that she didn't appreciate her or see all her accomplishments. And I thought it was very unusual that when Nina got her period when she was a little girl that she went to her father 